Hello to our freaky family. I'm Michelle. And I'm Candy. And this is Sips of Crime. super happy that you guys tuned back in and we want to thank everybody for all of the support that they gave to episode one and we're excited to jump back in yes so candy's gonna tell us about what we are drinking today so the wine we have today is called shoe crazy it's a sweet red wine with chocolate and strawberry notes and apparently um in 2013 gwen hurt lost her corporate job and was in a car accident days later with a year of physical therapy ahead of her she made the decision to launch shoe crazy wine instead of succumbing to depression well that is very fitting because we have a survivor's tale for you guys of a badass woman so let's get that open it looks like it may be a little bubbly a little carbonation a little, little bubbly Cheers. Oh, that's sweet. It's good. I definitely taste the chocolate. Yes. I don't taste really any strawberry. Kind of right at the end. Maybe. It smells fruity, of course, because it's wine. Yeah. It, it smells more like strawberries than it tastes. I can definitely... And it's very really sh- not as carbonated as I thought it would be. No, it's not. It's not a fizzy wine at all. It's very chocolate forward, which I it wasn't is. expecting. I really thought I was going to hate this because it was red. Did you? Yeah, I did. I really did. But I'm slowly turning her to the dark side, you guys. Slowly. Slowly but surely. But this one's pretty good. (laughs) All right. So as I stated before, we do actually have a survivor's tale for you guys. Today we are going to be covering Carrie Swenson. So grab a glass. Grab a friend. And let's dive in. Carrie Swenson was born to Janet and Bob in 1961 and grew up with two other siblings in Pennsylvania until her family moved to Montana. While her mother was working as a nurse and ski patrol volunteer, Carrie took up skiing while she was young and fell in love with the sport. By 1984, at the age of 23, Carrie had become a biathlete. Now, I had to look this up because I had absolutely no idea what I've that was. I've never even heard of the word. Yeah. So please enlighten me of what that is. So according to the Google, um, a biathlon is a winter sport that combines cross-country skiing and rifle shooting. All in one. It is treated as a race with contestants skiing through cross-country trails, which is like what they have on the Olympics, you know, those really long... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Through a cross-country trail whose distance is divided into shooting rounds. So you ski, then you stop, you shoot, yes. and then ski again? Yes. Oh, Lord, no. Right, yeah. So she's already way more badass than I am because, I mean, I, I mean, I've snowboarded before, but like. I've never been skiing or snowboarding, so she's way, way ahead of me. Yeah, you guys are really going to like Carrie. Within that year, she had won a bronze medal competing in the world's, um, in the first women's biathlon world championship in France, and that's her and her teammates in France getting there. That's really awesome. Yeah. 
When she returned home, she took a summer job at the Lone Mountain Guest Ranch in Big Sky, Montana. And this was perfect for her because she could actually train on the ranch each day. Um, she goes on very long runs. Mm-hmm. And they say that the terrain on, like in those backcountry you know, mountain trails was really good for Carrie because um, obviously, you know, the cross-country skiing requires you to take those long strides and it's really hard. And so the up and down terrain was like a a really great place for her to train. Um, And then she could just go into work at the ranch. So it was really great for her. She was well-liked on the ranch and a lot of the employees who worked there really considered each other family. Um, They all got along really well. And then they all lived happily ever after on the ranch, the end. Podcast over. I'm pretty sure you lied. Yeah. Something's going to happen. It doesn't actually end that way. Unfortunately. (laughs) Now, we're going to pause telling Carrie's story here for just a minute and bring in two new characters. Ooh. Okay. So, in 1984, Dan Nichols was 18 years old. His parents had legally parted ways when he was four years old, and he resided with his mother for the you know main part of the school term. However, whenever the low, uh, whenever those long breaks came around, he experienced the wilderness with his father, Don Nichols. Don was fifty-three. He was, and a self-proclaimed mountain man. Doesn't that just turn your fancy? Yeah. <laughs> Dan said his father didn't trust people and the concept of society in general, leading him to stay off the radar. Therefore, as Dan grew older, he got isolated as well. They lived off squirrel meat, poached livestock, and red beans. Squirrel meat? Squirrel meat, yes. Have you ever ate squirrel? Have you? No. No? (laughs) I just wasn't wasn't sure if maybe, like, I'm just supposed (laughs) to be eating squirrel. I thought you were about to tell me about it. (laughs) No, okay, so I will tell you <laughs> that my lovely husband did kill a squirrel. Did and he cook it? Yes, he skinned it like he would a deer and threw it on the grill, all laid out, all legs, arms sprawled open. <laughs> he apparently he ate it. I had went to bed because oh my god, you know this was years ago, and um, he he said it tasted like chicken, and oh. he asked me before I went to bed if I wanted some, and I said. Hell no, no, I do not. <laughs> Decline. You go ahead and enjoy your squirrel. I would no. assume that there's not a lot of meat on the squirrel. I didn't look at it. I couldn't tell you. Oh. I, was, I just didn't know if maybe I should have tried it. Or Well, Dan and Don liked it. Mm-hmm. Now, according to trial testimonials in 1979, five years before this incident, Don had purchased a chain. You see, he had a dream of starting his own, quote, tribe, unquote, or quote, colony, unquote, in the mountains. Of course, to do this, he had to secure a wife for his son so they could produce children, as one does, and knew that a woman most likely would not go willingly at first. She probably doesn't want to eat squirrel. I would assume so. That would be a downside to me. (laughs) So I'm assuming he thought he would abduct someone and then eventually she would start to enjoy their company and the idea of living off the grid and agree to help them start this colony. So they definitely had a few screws loose, to say the least. This is where the lives of Dan and Don Nichols collides with Carrie. On July 15th of 1984, Carrie had just started a six-mile training run when Dan and Don saw her jogging. She was wearing red shorts and a blue t-shirt with the sleeves cut off, and as Carrie came closer, Dan testifies that he was pleased with 
the choice of taking her as his wife because she was just the type of good-looking woman they had been hoping for. Dan and Don blocked her on the trail, Don in front and Dan in the back, grabbed her wrists and threatened her with a shotgun. They then wrapped the chain around her waist and began to lead her into the woods. When she, of course, started to struggle because she's a fighter, he hit her in the head with the blunt end of his gun. So they have a campsite nearby, and when they arrived back to it, they um, wrapped her in a sleeping bag and tied her to a tree. Um, now, as they were walking, um, the police said that Carrie had actually um, like left clues along the way. Because, again, not only is she a fighter, but she's also smart. Right. So she would, like, take her watch off, and she had, like, a bandana, and she would, like, leave that, like, on the way. I mean, that's really smart, though. Yeah. Like, I'd, I'm not sure if I would be in that mindset if somebody was kidnapping me to say, oh, hey, um, instead of, you know, freaking out. Freaking out, yeah. Let me leave some evidence. Yeah. She, uh, I think they also said that she would, like, step in, like, softer dirt on purpose to, like, leave a footprint opposed to, like, yeah. So that smart, very, very smart. Yeah, like I said, I don't think that I would have uh, the mental capacity if I was ever in that, that scenario to, to do that. By nightfall, Carrie's disappearance had obviously been noticed by her parents and employees at the ranch. So they immediately assembled search teams to go out looking for her. If you guys hear my children in the background, I apologize. I, I have a child and a husband downstairs playing and I can hear them. But if you guys can too, I'm sorry. I will try to edit that out. One of the search parties included two of her fellow co-workers from the, ran from the ranch named Jim Schwalbe, who was a 30-year-old landscaper, and 36-year-old Alan Goldstein. Now, both of these men um, are important pieces to our story. Um, and they were, they, were, they were both described as really great hunters, good shots. They, they both would be very comfortable in the forest. So, you know, we can't think of anybody else to go and look for our girl right now other than these two um, really savvy, you know, guys who would be very comfortable searching for somebody in such a thick, dense area. They ended up getting split up from each other around 7.30 a.m. the next morning after Carrie's abduction when Jim hears a gunshot ring out from the woods. He goes bursting through to the campsite and finds the Nichols men standing over Carrie, who was laying on the ground with a gunshot wound to her chest. He reports hearing Dan muttering something like, I didn't mean to shoot her, and was almost crying and looked like he was in shock. At that same time, Don pointed his gun at Jim, who retreated back into the forest to go find help when Alan arrives. Now, we're going to like Alan a lot, too, because he draws his weapon, points it at Don, and says, drop your weapons. You're surrounded by 200 people and to surrender. No, this is not true. I was about to say, when did 200 people come into play? 200 Wait a minute. 200 we were people, talking about two, not 200. 200 people did not arrive. But Alan was thinking on his feet. He was thinking this was a great way for the boys to think, you know, hey, we're done. They caught us. And they, and they can't shoot their way out of this. Don, who had originally claimed that they would kill any rescuer that came to Carrie's aid, unfortunately did fire and shot Alan, who un unfortunately died in the woods by the camp. Aww. Yeah. The two men packed up camp as quickly as they could, unchained Carrie from the tree, who still lay there bleeding, and retreated into the deep forest of the Montana mountains. So Carrie was actually suffering from a collapsed lung. 
at this point, where the bullet had entered and exited her body. Oh, yeah. Now, Jim had actually dropped his backpack where when he found Carrie before he left to go and find help. And while Carrie was losing breath and blood crawled over to the backpack where she found a chocolate bar, a bottle of lemonade and a sleeping bag. She nibbled on the chocolate bar and drank and drank small sips of the lemonade while she lay there for four hours. After being abducted held hostage for 18 hours, and being shot. This girl laid in the dirt for another four hours. I mean, I could only imagine what was going through her mind at the time, though. Like, how scared she probably was. Mm -hmm. Not sure if she was going to make it. Yeah. It's insane. So, at 11.55 a.m., rescuers find Carrie and brought a helicopter with them where she was airlifted to safety, and again, because she's a badass, she survived. It took local authorities four months to find Dan and Don, but when they did, they were arrested in December of that same year and went without a fight. Did you know they were only two miles away from the campground where everything happened? What idiots. Yeah. Right. That's they didn't even make it two miles in the four months no, that they were supposed to be? They were literally found hiding at a campsite less than two miles away from the highway Dan was sentenced to 10 years in prison for kidnapping and assault. He was released from prison in 1991, though he's been in and out of trouble with the law several times since then. Don, who they concluded to kind of be the ringleader of the two, was sentenced to 85 years for kidnapping and for the murder of Alan. Unfortunately, after spending only 32 years in prison, he was released on parole in 2017 at the age of 86. So these disgusting flea mites are out. And let's just say that I hope that you get paper cuts every day and that you're both living miserable lives. And one of the only reasons that Don was even granted parole was due to um, the parole board took into consideration his clean jail record. Yeah, because, you know, everything he did before that. And the completion of anger management and life skills in jail. Probably needed some of those after living in the mountains. Right, so let's just make it okay to release them. All because, you know, we have a clean record in jail. He's been good. And we did anger management. He hasn't, he hasn't. We now know, we know, now we know our life skills. Yes. We can go out in public. He hasn't committed murder since. No. (sighs) So that's him. He looks creepy as hell. He is. He does. I mean, even at, what, 85? 86. He had to have been a very creepy-looking man when she was abducted. Yeah. So some interesting facts about this case before we wrap everything up. So, of course, the, the media had a field day um, with this case and the manhunt before these dirt bags were found. I guess the idea of these men living off the land and in the woods intrigued people. They were referred to in the media as, quote, mountain men, unquote, quote, rugged, unquote, and, quote, survivorless, unquote. One article in Esquire even painted them as, quote, rowdy mountain men trying to snag a wife, unquote. This is simply nothing less than disrespectful to Carrie. Yeah. Um, Because these men are murderers. That's all they are. They're not. They were going to 
they were going to snag her and keep her against her will. That's, right. That's not okay. Yeah. And, I mean, apparently a lot of people were just so intrigued by these two men who were living off the land and were able to survive, blah, 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 that, like, the murder and kidnapping really got, like, just swept under the rug in the media. And this pissed Carrie off, as it should. Yeah. So Alan Goldstein is dead because of these disgusting people. Not to mention Carrie, who thankfully made a full recovery, was scarred for life by these events and still has painful shrapnel in her chest. Still, to this day. The media has no reason to downplay that, only to focus on the lifestyle Don and Dan were living. Carrie's mom actually wrote a book. And this was um, the first time that Carrie really opened up to any type of media yeah. outlet about it. And I think that, she, you know, she probably felt really comfortable to tell her mom the story because, you know, her mom was like, obviously, your mom's your biggest fan. Right. And so... And you got to tell somebody. Yeah. Like, you can't keep all that bottled up. I mean, yeah. I'm sure she talked to her friends about it. Right. But to, like, sit down with someone and tell them every detail mm-hmm. of everything you went through, that's got to be someone, you know, right. you really, really trust. Yeah. And to open up a paper, especially in your, you know, hometown, and to see your story plastered everywhere and... Really not a lot of information about you, but mainly the information is about this Dan and Dawn person who you, you know, have, you obviously are scared of and, you know, know how bad of people they are and they're being painted as these savvy men. Um, You know, it's it's probably heartbreaking. So um, her mother wrote a book. It was called Victims, um, the Carrie Swenson story, and it was published in 1989. So in this book, Carrie finally opens up and stated that these guys were portrayed so incorrectly as, quote, mountain men, unquote. She said when the police found them, they went without a fight because they were cold, hungry, and tired of living out there. They only lived in the mountain part-time and couldn't actually survive out there without pretty much breaking the law, poaching, breaking into cabins, stealing supplies. Um, They would leave the mountain for several months at a time to go and purchase modern-day equipment. She says these are absolutely not mountain men. Nope. Good. Yeah. I'm glad that she's I mean, up be for truthful. Tell them the truth. Don't sit there and portray them as these men that didn't know what they were doing and it was okay for them to take a wife. Yeah. So I also wanted to give you yet another reason to call Carrie a badass. The reason that she survived was actually because of her breathing. Remember, oh, she from had her a, training. Yes. Yeah, so remember, she had a collapsed lung from the gunshot, but the skill, But she tells the article that I read that when competing in a biathlon, breathing is so important. The sport requires contradictory skills, an exhaustive push in the ski portion, and the tightly controlled breath to shoot. She goes on to say, while she was laying in the dirt, she just tried to slow her breathing, which in turn slowed her heart rate, like she had done several times before, in far less dramatic circumstances, right. of course. Um, which decelerated the hemorrhage. That's really smart. She's really freaking smart. I love her. I love Carrie. Like, like, she's an amazing woman. Yes. So where is she now? She wasted no time after recovering to start training again and even competed in the 1986 biathlon in Norway only two years after her abduction and injury and freaking placed fourth. That's pretty badass. Go, Carrie. We love you. She attended Colorado State University Veterinarian School and graduated in 1990. She's now 60 and is still involved in biathlons as a coach and a mentor. I mean, she's really freaking badass. Yeah. So that's Carrie Swenson. We love you. Awesome. Way to go. (laughs) 
So one of our freaky family members, Matt Knight, who has a podcast called Checkmate with Bishop and Knight, they are an uncensored, unapologetic, and downright hilarious podcast, so check them out. Um, They sent in their little scary story that we will share with you. Yeah, so their story actually um, ties back into our episode one case, The Lawson Murders. And so he wanted to share his experience with that after listening to our podcast. He says, The local funeral home is in Madison, where I was born and raised. The funeral home is now Madison Dry Goods, ran by a great guy named Richard Miller. I worked in the building next door, which was a restaurant, and I believe at the time of the Lawson murders, all of it was actually one facility, which was the funeral home. Everyone who worked at the restaurant had seen or heard some type of paranormal activity. Spooky, spooky. Now, I'm not a big believer in paranormal or ghosts or spirit and things like that. But one night while I was closing the restaurant, we kept hearing a ball drop in the corner by the bar. And the bell would ring. Each time we would go to investigate, there would be nothing there that could have made that noise. I don't like spooky ghost stories. (laughs) I don't, again, it's funny that we say that because we're doing a true crime podcast, but it's like, I'm just picturing what's going through your mind know, right I now. I like true crime and spooky two, is a, a two different true categories. They are. That is true. I will give you that. Several ladies had reported seeing children dressed in 1920s clothing, and I was washing my hands one night in the men's room, and the door has a spring hinge to it. That makes sure it stays closed. And when I was washing my hands, it slammed back open out of nowhere. And on a completely separate night, I saw a woman in what I would describe a 1920s farmer's wife dress. (laughs) Okay. You know, the one with the ruffles. (laughs) (laughs) He says, I'm no expert on women's fashion. (laughs) Over by one of the wait stations. When I turned back to tell her that she couldn't be back there, she had vanished. This was the funeral home where the Lawsons were taken because the home closest to town where the murders took place wasn't big enough or equipped to handle all nine bodies. Oh my goodness. If if you saw a woman in a dress from the 1920s, you're just going to tell her she can't be back there. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I might have more questions. Wait a minute. (laughs) What are you doing? He's such a dedicated worker. Fantastic. But Somebody's behind the wait staff and she's not supposed to be there. <laughs> I mean, I'm seeing someone that is not dressed like we're supposed to be dressed. And this is not a Halloween party or, you know, some kind of themed party. I'm, I got a lot more questions than you're not supposed to be back here. What are you doing? What are you doing? Well, thank you, Matt Knight, for sending in your spooky story. We are so glad that you're still alive. And definitely go and check out their podcast. Again, that is Checkmate with Bishop and Knight. You can join our freaky little family, both on Instagram and Facebook, at Sips of Crime. For a chance to have your story featured on one of our future episodes, send us a Gmail to sipsofcrime at gmail.com. And you can find all of our episodes on any platform that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Stay alive.